0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of the farm Chatter Shopsites Fee series. On this episode of the series, I was joined once again by Professor Matt Goldish, and we picked up where we left off in the last episode, which was to discuss Shopsites Fee after the conversion, the what the belief and the theology was around that, and then after his death in 1676. And again, you know, historically what happened and the theology and belief in him. Uh, we continued past that, some figures and some stories that went on after that as well. Um, I will mention here that, first of all, thank you everyone for any feedback that I've gotten. Um, I appreciate all the feedback uh, on the series especially. And if anyone has any questions or comments about the series, especially as it relates to I guess the first two episodes I did, these two episodes with Professor Goldish, but even around the other ones or just in general questions about uh, you can email me, let me know, it's farmchatter at gmail.com. Uh, Professor Goldish has been gracious enough to agree to come back for a third episode to just tie things up. If there were things that we missed, I mean, of course there are, and the the there's going to be other guests on the series as well c- continuing. But just I just want to mention that so if anyone has anything in particular that they feel like after these two and listening and then, of course, the other episodes that we didn't get to, please let me know. Once again, I want to thank the uh, corporate sponsor of the series, Gluck Plumbing. Uh, for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, camera in main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call. 732 732- extension 1. That's 732-523-1836, extension 1. Once again, for any feedback, comments, or to support the podcast, to sponsor an episode, please email me, sfaramchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfaram Chatter podcast. Uh, In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined once again by Professor Matt Goldish, who is the Samuel M. and Esther Melton Chair in Jewish History at Ohio State University, and we'll be discussing, this will be the second part of our uh, Shab Tzvi podcast, uh, which is related to Shab Tzvi, um following the conversion until his death and after that as well. So first of all, thank you very much, Professor Goldish, for joining me once again. Happy to be here. So we did discuss in the last episode until the conversion, but I guess let's just quickly recap um, Shapsey's fees. You know the conversion where it took place and what happened, and then we will move on from there. So Shabbatai had been
1: imprisoned by the Ottoman government in Gallipoli, and uh, by paying off the guards uh, and. Doing those things that were typical, uh, he turned it into uh, what amounted to a visitor center. So uh, instead of uh, it looking like a prison, it looked like it was his headquarters. And um, Jews from all over the uh, Mediterranean and Europe came to visit him there and check him out and uh, get the a sense of who he was and so on, including a famous visitors, the son and son-in-law of the Taz, which uh, I, I can't remember if we talked about that last time we did. okay. Um, uh, the movement was at its height in July and August of 1666, and uh, a visitor from Lviv uh, showed up, Nechemia HaKohen, And it is not quite clear what his program or what his agenda was, but he went in in private to talk with Shabbatai. And he apparently talked to him for a couple of days straight, probably taking time out for meals. And um, uh, he had some kind of huge disagreement with him. Uh, Maybe it was about what the messianic status of Nehemiah himself was. Maybe it was. Uh, about whether all the Kabbalistic uh, d- defense of, of Shabbatai was appropriate. Uh, not clear what it was. But in short, Nehemiah comes out from the Echidus with Shabbatai. He um, tells the guards that he wants to become a Muslim, which turns out to be very simple to do. He denounces Shabbatai. Uh, And uh, he leaves back to Poland, where he returns to his regularly scheduled Jewish life. Uh, Apparently, the Ottoman court was in Edirne, or Adrianople, at this time. Guards come from Edirne. They arrest Shabbatai Tzvi. It sounds odd to us to arrest somebody who's already in prison, but that's what they did. And they take him to Edirne. And uh, this is in September of 1666. September 15th, he is brought before uh, the Divan, Kopulu and before the uh, Sultan. And uh, he's asked what he has to say for himself. Uh, that uh, people have been recording that he has announced himself to be the King of the Jews or the Messiah of the Jews. and uh, what does he have to say? And he denies being the Messiah of the Jews. He's apparently at this time in one of his low states. Uh, I, I'm a complete believer in Sholem's thesis that he was bipolar and he was apparently at a low state at this point. And um, he's standing there and uh, the government, uh, right, the, 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 uh, the divan is deciding, you know, whether to just go ahead and cut his head off as you would, right, uh, or what to do, and there is a uh, Jewish apostate, a former Jew who is now Muslim, who is the physician of the Sultan, and he's standing there, and he apparently sort of whispers into Shabtai's ear that, well, why don't you go ahead and save yourself and convert to Islam? Uh, My guess is that everybody involved was well aware of the Rambam's position about this type of situation. And uh, Shabtai goes ahead and converts to Islam. Now, if you know stuff about the history of messiahs and messianism, that's never what they do. You always martyr yourself. Right. You allow them to kill you and then you become this like uh, huge figure and a, a religion builds around you. And right. And so that's not what he did. Uh, he um, he converted to Islam. He got a Muslim name. He got a stipend from the uh, from the Sultan uh, and he was considered a sort of celebrity convert and they hoped that he would bring lots of Jews over into Islam with him. Well, he brought some, and over the next few years, uh, he brought about 200 families in Edirne into Islam with him. And apparently, it was a sort of semi-open secret that he and these people, while practicing Islam in public, still held on to a lot of Jewish practices in private, and uh, maybe some other stuff also having to do with beliefs in Shabbatai being the Messiah. Um, My sense, and maybe if you talk to Mark Baer or somebody else who's an expert on this, they can tell you more, but my sense is that Islam, um, over a thousand years that it had existed, um, was kind of accustomed to people converting to Islam, which requires a very simple statement of faith, uh, sort of bringing with them other practices, other ideas, and that they weren't real doctrinaire about that. So they sort of let Shabtai go in this way. And um, he continued to kind of uh, preach his own faith to his believers. He lived in Edirne and in Constantinople. Again, that is what Jews continue to call the city that became Istanbul. They continue in their literature always to call it Constantinople, uh, Kushta. Anyway, he lived in these two cities, which were the seats of Ottoman uh, government uh, for a number of years for about six years. In 1672, uh, Somebody, a group of Jews, Muslims, uh, denounced him to the government again and said that he is not being a proper Muslim. And by the way, also, and there is very good reason to believe that this was the case, that there were a lot of, um, let's call it, inappropriate gender practices, how's that, going on. Uh, with Shabbatai and among his group. Uh, Just as an example, um, he divorced his wife, he arranged to marry somebody else, and then he remarried the wife. Um, But that's not really what we're talking about. There was all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, Anyway, uh, some money was apparently paid to the Ottoman government too, and Shabbatai was re-arrested, and he was sent into exile in Albania in 1672. Uh, Nathan of Gaza came to visit him, uh, both back in Turkey and then in Albania uh, a number of times. Samuel Primo, who had been his secretary, came to visit him. Um, and uh, Abram Hayakhini, who was one of the, the great, brilliant rabbis who was a follower. So he continued to see these people. Um, he sort of went back and forth between being an ardent Muslim and, and preaching his own faith. Uh, very, very hard to put a finger on what he actually thought if there was any one thing. Um, and uh, eventually in 1676, uh, on Yom Kippur, he uh, all of a sudden um, keeled over and died. Um, and uh, um, I should I should go back a step. Um, his wife Sarah had died in 1674, uh, and we know something about her. Um, there's a small book uh, by uh, Dr. van der Haven, um about Sarah that was published in the Netherlands. I think he's contemplating a larger book. Anyway, um, so she died and he remarried. He married a woman named Esther. In some sources, she's referred to as Yocheved, but I think her actual name was Esther. She was uh, the daughter of Rabbi Joseph Philosoph of, uh, of um Uh, of Saloniki, Salonika. He was a major rabbi, he was related to a whole bunch of other major rabbis. And this marriage, uh, right, was was really important for the future of the movement in Salonika. Uh, Philosoph was a big believer in Shantai Tzvi, and uh, everybody in his circle was. So, uh, that is kind of the short version of this story up until shabbatai dies nathan of gaza uh, died in uh, 1680 right at the beginning of the year and then uh afram hayashi died in
0: 1682. so Obviously, we're going to go back now that we have the basic, you know, understanding of what 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 went on there. So I think, um, I, I actually saw in your uh, an article that you published fairly recently. You made mention to this, this, uh, you know, how what happens to such movements that just collapsed, uh, you know, prophetic messianic messianic movements, you know, what exactly happens to the movements and then to the followers. And I think that's very important to bring up here as we obviously will discuss the fallout and the continued belief in him and who did and who changed their mind. But I think just, first of all, just to discuss broadly and overall, I mean, what happens to such movements in general and you know what happened in this case?
1: Okay, so I'll say a couple things about that. The very first thing has to do with something that we talked about last time, which is that uh, Kabbalah played a huge part in the entire picture. It played a huge part in the reason that people believed in Shabbatai to begin with, especially rabbis, uh, in in the, uh, the the complicated theology of the movement. And especially after his apostasy and after his death, uh, it, it was an enormous piece of why people continued to believe in him. And it's very difficult to explain, but... That, people often think of rational philosophy, the philosophy of the Rambam as being theologically problematic in Judaism. Uh, The the ideas of the Rambam considered heresy by various people and so on. Uh, The ideas of the Kabbalah seem to get a pass. Well, Kabbalah, right, probably because the Kabbalists were extremely dedicated to the 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 practice of the mitzvot and the detailed uh, uh, ideas about what they mean. But the ideas of the kabbalists from the 13th century, until the period we're studying the 17th century, they had put forward some highly problematic ideas, I would say, from the point of view of traditional Jewish theology, that there is such a thing. Uh, There were some very strange ideas in there. And they all sort of came to the surface in this movement. And uh, I would add that there are some strange ideas in Tanakh. Um, it's some, some strange descriptions of what our uh, our ancestors did under various circumstances. Uh, and there are lots of very sort of strange ideas buried in, in the Medrash and Agada of the of the Talmud. And the Sabbateans were able to kind of round up all this material and shape a coherent uh, Kabbalistic and Midrashic theology out of it that was very convincing to a lot of people and continue to be convincing. So that's the very first thing that I want to say. Second thing is I want to bring up uh, something that you and I talked about earlier, this famous book from the 1950s by a group of social scientists called When Prophecy Fails, um, uh, Festinger et al. Uh, This book is a book really about, uh, this is the book that coins the term cognitive dissonance. It talks about what happens to people when all their eggs are in one basket, when they believe, in a prophecy or prophetic movement, and the prophecy doesn't come true uh, as an interesting book because the the authors actually join a prophetic movement that's going on in their time. Among the examples that they give is actually the Sabbatean movement, Shaptaut. But Sholem's book had not come out in English when they published their book, and so all they knew was a small amount of material that was available in English and European languages and they used an outdated. version of the shop types story, but they still are absolutely correct that the Sabbatine movement fits their model perfectly and here's what they say happens in these movements. The first thing that happens is that of the concentric circles of believers in any given movement, the outer circles, the less dedicated believers fall away. The prophecy fails and they leave the movement disillusioned. But of the hard core, the inner core of believers, not only do those people continue to believe they redouble their efforts right what is it they say now they double down right they get more intense about their beliefs they recalculate they rejigger the, uh, the, the the prophecy they do whatever they have to do this is where the cognitive dissonance comes in and not only that but they then go and proselytize and go to bring in more people into the faith so it's uh, it's completely uh, not what you would expect, but they have uh, documented this happening in movements over and over again. So that's a second piece. Uh, And uh, that is exactly what happens with the Sabbateans. Most people abandon the movement. uh, But there is a hard core of believers, among whom are many rabbis, and, um, and they not only continue the faith, they seek to expand it. A third thing that I wanna say is that um, when you study uh, messianic movements of any religion, you see that there are certain patterns of how people react when their prophecy fails. There are certain responses and you see them over and over. Christianity is the av-tipus. Christianity is the archetype for explaining uh, failed messianic movements. Jesus Jesus comes as far as I can tell, the world has not been redeemed. How are you going to explain that? So they invent the idea of the apotheosis. well he, he seems to have died he didn't exactly die um, and he's coming back. So they, they split the movement into two parts, the first part in which he did some stuff, and then there's going to be the later part in which he finishes the job. You definitely see that with the Sabbateans all over the place. Then is the idea of occultation, that the, uh, the, the Messiah, in the case of Jesus, right, uh, in the case of the right, and so on, didn't die, they are occulted somewhere, they have been hidden, usually in a mountain somewhere or up in heaven or in some special place. And that's where they are, and they're coming back. And we know about the role of Enosh and of Eliyahu Hanavi uh, in, these, in these moments, because these are the two people in Tanakh who never die. So they're occulted somewhere, wherever it is, they will show up to usher in the Mashiach so definitely have that uh and uh in in sabbatinism there it has its own special twists about what this means so the the most important uh versions of this are the uh the, the versions that are taught by nathan of gaza on the one hand and abraham miguel cardoso on the other hand uh the two sort of major theologians of the movement. So um, Nathan of Gaza gets the news in November of 1666, and he immediately says, this is a big secret. This is, there's something going on here, capitalistic meaning and so on. And he teaches the following idea. Shabbat Ha'etzvi has been fighting with the Sitra Achra all the time, that's been his mission. And these strange things that he does, the ma'asim zarim, right? Uh, the, the, the abirot, and the changing dates, and you know, all these things that he does, it's all part of his fight against the against the Sitra Akhra. And now is the ultimate moment in his fight against the Sitra Akhra. All the Nitzotzot, the holy sparks uh, of kedusha have been gathered from everywhere in the world, and so everything is sort of laid out for the mashiach to come. But there are still some nitzotzot, some holy sparks buried among the Klipot, right? So if we know the basics of Lurianic Kabbalah, you know, right, the, this realm of the of the klipot, of the husks of unholiness that that uh, are are everywhere. Uh, after the, the divine catastrophe and creation. So Shavu Tzvi has to, uh, like a secret agent, I don't know, like James Bond, right? He's got to sneak his way into the world of the Qlipot, uh in order to rescue those last few Nitzot of Kedusha. And he does that by converting to Islam, which everybody is going to see as a, a, a right, an, an apostasy, a horrible. How could he? And so on. And everybody will reject him. But meanwhile, he is there, uh, in the realm of the Kipot, gathering up the, those last Nitzotzot of Nusach, and he's going to pop back up. Those Nitzotzot are going to return to their to their source in God, and uh, and it's going to save the world. Uh, Cardoso is super interesting. Cardoso is a, uh, a converso, he's a Marami. He was born in Spain as a Christian, a descendant of Jews, right? But he was born into a Catholic world and he lived there until adulthood. And he's highly trained in Christian theology and philosophy and so on. And he comes out uh, and he uh, converts back to his ancestral Judaism. And he's clearly an incredible genius, as is Nathan of Gaza. And um, he is a theologian of the movement as well. And his approach is that he actually says this. He says, uh, the Mashiach is destined to become a converso, like me. He actually says this, like me, right? He has to convert. His idea is somewhat similar to Nathan's, although he vehemently denies Nathan's whole theology, but it's it's got this sort of formal similarity, right? That the, the Mashiach has to uh, be reviled by the Jewish people. He has to do that by becoming the converse. So he has to leave Judaism and go become uh, this person who is hated and reviled for his abandonment of his people. And only then, Right? Can he come back and and bring uh, everything back together? So these are theologies of the conversion of Shabtai, which uh, these two uh, brilliant uh, Sabbatean theologians are teaching, and it's enough for people. People are looking for. A reason to keep believing. So most people abandon the movement when Shabtai converts to Islam, especially after he dies. As I said last time, it's very difficult to explain a non-Jewish dead Jewish Messiah. But uh, but, but so most people abandon the movement. But there was this hardcore. And this was what they needed. They needed uh, a theological, philosophical explanation, which would allow them to continue to believe. Uh, It's really mostly a psychological point, right? Their eggs are all in one basket. They put everything into this and they really are unable to believe that this could possibly not be the real thing.
0: Even more odd is the one I think you alluded to, where you said with the belief where the even though the, he died, you're like, no, the Messiah is just hiding, et cetera. So here he converts. He doesn't actually die. So it's like that person walking around in the turban is someone else. Chapsay says hiding in heaven or some weird, right? Some weird, weird take on that theology that they have, which I don't even understand. Is that true? That's also what somehow? Well,
1: I think until he died, the uh, the, the idea was that he's, he's on some kind of uh, – Secret, uh, kabbalistic mission uh, um, in the world of the Klikot. So he looks like this Muslim guy who's, uh, you know, walking around, going to the mosque, and he's hanging around a lot. By the way, with Sufis, with Muslim mystics, uh, whose ideas are amazingly similar to those of the Kabbalists in a lot of cases, uh, and their practices, uh, and. Um, uh, uh, one of Pavel's students uh, is has done brilliant work. Feldman, right, in this area, uh, unbelievable work. Anyway, um, so, uh, so as long as he's alive, uh, he is um, uh, right. He's 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 on a secret mission. Once he's dead, then it's easier to explain that he's not really dead. He's occulted. Right. And if anybody thinks that it's hard to believe, right, how would people possibly believe that the Messiah could still be alive when he died? Well, you don't have to look far for people to believe that.
0: Anyway. So right. So so now, I mean, something like you mentioned, the ones on the outside fell fell away, and the ones in the middle stayed in. I think uh something that I mean, I guess we can approach this two ways. Um, but I guess the first thing is that maybe listeners would be curious about is, you know, r- rabbinic figures. Obviously, them, there were a lot, many that believed in him. Did they all immediately just turn around and change their mind? And we'll, we'll get to the masses in a minute. But did the rabbinic figures just change their mind? Or were there some that continued to believe in him until death and then post-death?
1: I would say, and I, I made this argument in a recent article that I think you read today. <laughs> that uh, it was specifically rabbis who stayed with it. Uh, ordinary Jews, uh, even relatively learned ones, could not penetrate the Kabbalistic arguments of Nathan and Cardoso and Yachimi and uh, these uh, these figures who who were explaining what was going on with Shabbatai. And they couldn't have been in most cases, dedicated to Sabbatinism, to the faith in Shabbatai, in the same way as a rabbi could, who understood uh, what the Zohar had to say about the Mashiach, who knew what the Rambam had to say about Mashiach, which was amazingly uh, twisted by Nathan of Gaza, brilliantly, if I may say, uh, to reflect on Shabbatai positively, right. Only rabbis really had the tools to buy in at the full strength of the movement. And therefore, it was lots of rabbis. And um, people have said, oh, you know, secondary elite. Moshe Eidel was famous for this idea about secondary rabbinic elite. So some people have said, well, it's sort of the secondary level of rabbis who who bought in or who remained dedicated. Well, no, it wasn't. Um, we, it's hard for us today because, the, the and I think that we've discussed this, maybe we talked about it last time, you know, we have this standard rabbinic bookshelf, you know, so we know who's an important rabbi because their books are still, right, their spharm, this is the spharm chatter, right? So their spharm are still being chattered about, right? Their spharm are still being reprinted and so on. But that's not, the way that it works historically there are these enormous figures that uh you know 100 years later nobody's heard of but in their own time they are massive rabbinic luminaries um and uh, if they if they didn't publish a safe fair, or if their safe fair was sort of not republished or not noticed and they be, didn't become part of the standard bookshelf well we've sort of forgotten about them But there were major figures uh, who not only were believers in Shabtai at the height of the movement, but continued to believe in him afterwards. Uh, And as you know, uh, among my favorite figures uh, to discuss in that context, uh, the the greatest Kabbalist in Italy and afterwards in Amsterdam was Rabbi Moshe Zakuto. And Rabbi Moshe Zakuto had a number of outstanding students, but probably his two most outstanding students were Avraham Rovigo, Rabbi Avraham Rovigo, and uh, Rabbi Benyamin Hakohen Vitali, uh, later of Reggio Emilia. Uh, these, right, these were two uh, huge Talmidei Chachamim of the period in Italy, and the uh, Chacham Zakuto, may have been interested in Shabtai Tzvi for a while, but rejected the movement certainly uh, after the apostasy. But his two students became the two leading, I would say, leading Italian uh, Sabbateans of the later 17th century. And uh, it it becomes even more important because, one of the, let's see, let me see if I can get this straight. The this, the the uh, son-in-law mm-hmm. of,
0: uh, of
1: Rabbi Benjamin Hakohen was Rabbi Yishaiah Basan. Rabbi Yishaiah Basan was the teacher of the Ramchal, uh, and when the Ramchal uh, came forward with a or or it became uh, recognized outside his immediate circle that he had a magid, right, this heavenly mentor who was talking to him. His One of the first people that he discussed it with was Rabbi Benyaman HaKohen, uh, who became a huge supporter of the Ramcha. And this became a huge problem for Rabbi Moshe Chachiz and the other opponents of the Ramachal because he was this huge Tamil Chacham and this highly respected, pious figure, this Rabbi Ben Yaman uh, but he was a Sabbatean, dedicated, right? So uh, there are lots more examples of major figures from the period who not only were believers during the height of the
0: movement, but continued
1: to be believers afterwards.
0: Interestingly, about uh, Benyamin Akai and also known now, maybe people have seen his uh, acronym at Rabach. Um, Rabach. Interesting, interestingly, talking about Svarim chatter, there have been stuff printed from him recently. Uh, Zichron Aaron has printed a parak shira with his uh, commentary and of David Oppenheim and others, and then they've also included his notes. I think in Carbon Aaron, uh, I think it's in Tarzkanim, and like I think in other places. And there's no mention. Obviously, people don't know. I know Elie Kabach discusses him in her book, I uh, you know he is discussed there as a, as a Sabatian. I mean, yeah, and, and discussing the Ramchal, you mentioned, um, I'll refer listeners to my uh, podcast with uh, David Sklar about Ramchal, where we did discuss that. And that is that is absolutely the case. So yes. And then another figure that we will, I'm sure, discuss later on is the Yudah Chassid, otherwise known as from the uh, Chorvashul, the Chassid, you know, that people are familiar with. And we'll get to that a little later. So, you know, and we did discuss on the last episode about this whole thing with what is a famous rabbinic figure. Well, I just I want guess. to
1: say one other thing in case anybody should doubt that the rabbi was a Sabbatean, he had a picture of Shabbatay Tzvi hanging up in his house.
0: And how do you, how do we know
1: that? Sholem says it. I don't know who told Sholem. In other words, I don't know where he read it, but he read it from an eyewitness.
0: And I seem to recall, I don't remember remember if it's um, Professor says or someone else, that he has a work written about uh, Sabatian theology. He has something in in manuscript. I I don't remember where I saw that. Somewhere. But, um, right. we have letters of
1: his, especially with Rovigo. There was a a very robust correspondence because they were best friends, very close friends. And uh, in Rovigo left a lot of manuscript works. And then other people had copies of letters. Uh, and the letters that they exchanged, uh, it is very clear that he was deeply involved with uh, Rovigo's base medrash in which lots of uh, sabbatin activity was going on.
0: So we'll, refi- we'll, we'll, I guess, revisit uh, Rovigo and, and the others in, in in a few minutes. But I think just to finish up this part is... You know, what, so what was the reaction overall? I mean, you mentioned a lot of, the, lot of the, the, the general population and the people on the outside just fell off. But I mean, what was the reaction? You know, there was obviously, there was the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, Italy, and then you had Poland and Amsterdam and Germany. I mean, what was the reaction in various places? And was it the same? And what was just, what, what happened there?
1: So really, uh, it's very odd how mixed the reaction was and how uneven so the rabbis of communities right there's you can imagine that that rabbis whose responsibility it is to create a stable jewish community to make sure that there is a a fundraiser to build the new shul and have a new safer torah written and they are looking at the long term and so on right throughout jewish history those people who are responsible for the sort of establishment Jewish community are at odds with people who are all about the Mashiach, because if people think the Mashiach is about to come or has already come or is in the process of coming or something like that, they're not going to be interested in building a new Talmud Torah or buying sparring for the shul library or something. They're abandoning everything. Some of them are quitting their jobs and selling their stuff to move to Jerusalem, right? These two things are at odds with each other throughout Jewish history. Lionel Kochin has written an interesting little book about that. But uh, that's what happens now also uh, when Shabtai Zvi converts to Islam. The leaders of Jewish communities, uh, the first thing that they do is they go back to the Kinkas of the Kehillah and they cut the pages out that contain all the discussions about what people were doing when they thought that Shabtai Tzvi was Mashiach. So literally many of the primary sources that we might be able to use about what went on at the height of the movement have been physically cut out of the community notebooks and so on. Uh, the communal leaders uh, come down very hard on the movement, and they uh, officially declare that you know nobody can uh, participate, and uh, they make announcements about uh, nobody should be learning Kabbalah below the age of 40, and uh, all this type of thing. Um, and yet in almost every Ottoman community in almost every Italian community in almost every North African community and probably in many Polish communities, there are strong groups of believers. Uh, some of them are really underground. Some of them are not so much underground. Some of the rabbis who lead communities are believers some of those rabbis are really underground about their beliefs like shmuel primo who became the rabbi in he uh he said that nobody should know right you should keep it totally underground and some of them were pretty open about their belief like the Rabbah with his picture of on the wall uh and uh right uh and then everything in between so uh, for example uh Rabbi Avram Rovigo is careful about who he uh, opens up to, and yet uh, he opens up to quite a number of people about his Sabatine beliefs. So there's everything in between, and um, it's the same thing with ordinary people, right? There are lots of people who continue to believe, some of them more hidden, some of them less so. Uh, the communities also differ you'll have a community that's full of believers right next to a community that comes out very strongly against the believers. Mostly that tends to be the leadership uh, more than the ordinary people, but uh, it it looks very uneven. It's very hard to kind of see why one community is is full of people who continue to believe and another is less so and so on. One of the factors that, that influences that uh, is for example, where Nathan of Gaza goes to visit. So he spends a lot of time in Salamiki. Salamiki is a center of believers, uh, both those who stay Jewish and those who convert to Islam in the 1680s. Um, he visits uh, Castoria, that community has a strong group of, group of believers. He visits Izmir, that community has a strong, group of believers and they also have a rabbi who's a Sabbatean. so uh
0: it's very uneven right now i mean and another thing that's related to this is i i think um first of all this whole discussion thing is in sholom's book and the chapter the eighth and ninth uh, seventh and eighth chapters it is i think um Where, why was it that a lot of them, like you said, you mentioned there, you alluded to, they did keep it quiet, so to speak. They didn't go around saying that they were believers. Was there a reason is that? What was there a specific reason that that was the case? Well, the first thing is that some communities at at different
1: points uh, put a cherem on, uh, first on Nathan of Gaza, uh, and then um, on on Cardoso, Cardoso kept getting thrown out of one community after another. Uh, another important point about this is that the theology of the movement uh, became more and more radical uh, as as the movement moved from an open public movement into a sort of underground movement. People did not want the Ottoman government to know that there were still believers, of course, because this this was a political hot potato. Right. You, you it looked like they were rising up against the Ottoman government, like they wanted to overthrow the Ottomans and return to uh, Jewish power and the land of Israel and so on. Right. So it's politically charged. Uh, but also, uh, Shabbatai and the people in his circle, uh, Shmuel Primo in his circle, and then Baruchia Russo uh, among the Dolme and certain other figures started teaching a highly radicalized version of Sabbatean theology. So it starts probably with Shabbatai himself uh, with something called his Raza Dimehem Musa. And uh, he teaches the following idea that. They're really right. There's the Ein Sof, there's the unknowable God, and then there's Eloke Israel, there's the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and they're not the same. And uh, the God of the Bible is the one who does everything, and the unknowable Ein Sof is really kind of irrelevant, but they're different. And in fact, in this book, he teaches a sort of a three part idea of God that there's Atika uh, Kadisha, uh, and then, right, so there's there's the Ains, essentially, it works like this there's the ein so, and then there's Elokei Israel, the God of Israel, and then there's the Shechina. So there are actually three parts. So as the theology is getting stranger, As people are beginning to treat Shabtai Tzvi himself as if he is a deity and later Baruchia Russo is treated as if he's a deity as the, uh, you'll excuse me, the sexual shenanigans are getting out of, right, are are happening and becoming known and so on, right? So there's heresy and there's political danger and there is... uh, and there are these practices which are just uh, embarrassing for people, Uh, the community tries to hush it up. Uh, Most people would be embarrassed to let it be known publicly that they are participants. And uh, the official kind of communal approach is to try and brush all of it under the rug and pretend that it never happened. So somebody who would come out publicly and announce that they are uh, participants in this movement would really be um, they they would, they would really be prejudicing themselves and and risking uh, being possibly in some cases put in and um, uh, put on the margins of the community. Not not always, but in
0: many cases, a big part that we haven't really discussed much of, we've mentioned little, is Nathan Nathan of Gaza himself. You alluded to that he visited Salonika and he was in uh, elsewhere. I mean, what happened to him once you know Shapsey converts, and then you know until and then we met, we mentioned what he believed, his theology. So that part, you know, but where where was where was his movements and what exactly? Obviously, he interestingly never converted to Islam. No, so. Uh, the
1: leading figures uh, felt very strongly, right, Hayakhini uh, and, uh, and, and Nathan and especially uh, Cardoso, they felt very strongly that that it is for the Mashiach, it's for Shabtai to convert and do whatever his mission is. It is not for them to convert. And they stay not only Jewish, but very... Um, very dedicated uh, uh mitzvah observers if i could put it that way um that is not true of all the uh jewish figures right who, the, the the believers who stayed within judaism there are some people who become antinomians sorry yeah yeah, yeah. We're... right so they're um there are some people who become radicalized and break all kinds of mitzvot in a ritual way, which is a whole different story. Um, but um, Nathan uh, does not teach that. And um, so what does he do? Well, he gets the news. He, uh, he heads out to go to Shabtai. Uh in a dear name, right? That's his first move. It's like, I got to go talk to him. I got to go find out what happened and what the meaning is and so on. And he's heading there. And the rabbis of Constantinople who are very strong opponents, right? Once the, once Shabbatai has, has uh, apostatized, they stop, uh, Nathan. And, um, and then, um, later he's, he's trying again. And, uh, Oh, and no, he, he actually, uh, he does go. He ends up going, even though, right, he stopped the first time he goes. And Shaptai sends him on a mission to go to Rome and to do some kind of tikkun in Rome. Now, this is something that Jewish messiahs do. Uh, it, you'll remember that Jesus, who is an early Jewish messiah you might have heard of, he uh, he had a deep involvement with the Romans, but he didn't have to go to Rome to do that because the Romans were in Eretz Israel. Uh, then um, uh, Abraham Abu LaFia went to Rome. So the Gemara says that the Mashiach is in Rome, right? The, the famous story. Uh, they ask the uh, An-Navi, you know, when's the Mashiach coming? And he says, oh, he's already here. He's sitting, standing at the... Uh, at the gates of Rome with the lepers, right? The, so so we know Mashiach is in Rome, right? So so Abraham Rafia goes to Rome, uh, then David HaRuveni goes on a mission to Rome, and then Shlomo Molcho goes to Rome. So it's a Jewish messiah thing to do, to go to Rome. Aliela Regal, I don't know, whatever. Um, so Nathan of Gaza goes to Rome at the behest of Shabtai. And he does whatever tikkun. And it's on his way there, on his way back, that he's grabbed by the rabbis of Venice. And they grill him. And they basically force him to recant and to uh, declare that he no longer believes and that he is not going to see any more of Shabbatai and, and all of this. And um, and they, uh, they hold on to that. He shows up later again uh, in Venice in the, uh, in the 1670s at Pesach time one year. And, uh, and he starts, right? He, he's, he's teaching Shaptaut, he's teaching all this stuff. And the, the rabbis of Venice publish a booklet with, the, with their interview with, with Nathan in which he recants everything, promises he'll stop and so on. And uh, they publish that. And Nathan uh, rejects it. He says, it's not true, none of it, or I said it under force or whatever it is. And um, he continues his activities. He has to leave Italy, as you can imagine. Uh, He goes back to the Balkans, to the Ottoman Empire, and he spends the rest of his life there. And he goes from one community to another community, especially Salomiki, Izmir, and uh, Castoria, and certain other places where he spends a lot of time. Eventually, he uh, dies in Turkey and uh, Macedonia. And um, all this time, he's going from one place to another and he's developing his theology in more detail and he's teaching people. So, uh, for example, in um in saloniki he apparently at least for a very short time taught a couple of young students uh their names are rabbi shlomo ayalon and rabbi eliahomo jajon these two young guys right they're maybe in their early teens at the time when he's there and uh, he teaches them and they become lifelong dedicated sabbatians And um, even though you didn't ask, I'm going to tell you about these two guys, because they are important Talmudim of of Nathan of Gaza from this period. What do they go on to do? Uh, Shnolo Ayalon, about whom I've written uh, a number of of essays, uh, he goes to stay with... uh, Oh, so first of all, first of all, it appears he... Uh, joins the Donmeh. He converts to Islam in the 1680s uh, with the Donmeh. Um, I won't go into what happens with him while he's uh, in that group, but let's just say he didn't come out with the same wife that he went in with. Uh, I'll leave it at that. OK. Uh, but he leaves eventually. He he uh, he uh, abandons the group and goes back to uh, to Judaism. Um, he does what was probably a good idea for somebody who had done that, and he leaves Salomiki, leaves the Ottoman Empire, and he goes to Italy. He spends time in the Beit Midrash of Abraham Rovigo, where he uh, teaches everybody the things that he learned from Nathan uh, from of Gaza, and he writes a small Sabbatean booklet that was pu- published in Sfunot bin and um, then uh, he, uh, he goes on um, various places, he, he's in Amsterdam, and uh, he is uh, noticed there by some representatives of the young London Sephardic community, which is looking for a chacham, and uh, they hire him to be the chacham in London. So that's a pretty nice position. And he spends 10 years as a Chacham in London from 1689 to 1699. Um, We have uh, material that he wrote while he was there, a bunch of it remains in manuscript, uh, strong Sabbatean character to things that he worked on while he was there, so it wasn't like he stopped being a believer. And uh, in 1699, he is invited by the Amsterdam Sephardic community to come there. And he is the, uh, the chief rabbi of the Sephardim in Amsterdam from 1700 until he dies in 1728. That is a plum position and not bad for a Sabbatean, a former Muslim Donmeh member. Uh, and young student of uh, Nathan of Gaza. Meanwhile, his friend, Eliyahu Mojajon, or Mochachion, he leaves uh, Saloniki. Uh, He comes to Italy as well. Not clear whether he spends time with uh, Avraham Rovigo. It seems very likely, because, like, why wouldn't he? Uh, And he ends up becoming the rabbi of the city of Ancona, which is a very ancient and very important uh, Jewish community on the Adriatic coast, which had formerly also had a leading Sabbatean figure as its rabbi, a man whose name, if you can believe this, was Rabbi Mehalal El Hallelujah. Uh, and uh, so he, I think there's somebody in between, but he is replaced by Eliyahu John. Uh, another Sabbatean. So uh, that's uh, so that's what Nathan is up to uh, in between Shabtai's apostasy in uh, 1666 and his own death in 1680.
0: Interestingly, the Rabbi Mahalalel did was something just published from him in Menahgnozim. Was that him in the newest volume?
1: I think you're right. I think there
0: was something in there. It's a poem, maybe, or a commentary. I think yeah, I'll yeah, yeah. yeah, have to double check that in volume. Like so interesting. Yeah, I was going to mention somebody alone. Now, who obviously, not, you know, hopefully, and I don't know when these will be published, but uh, posted. But uh, to discuss with Professor kalbach about he, his involvement, obviously, in the controversy uh, that, right. that erupted uh, in Amsterdam. So, yeah. Um, now, obviously, we mentioned the from Rovigo a bunch of times, so we probably should get to him. But, um, I mean, we could discuss before, after, however you want. I mean, just we kind of alluded to Shapsay's Ch- death and afterwards, the belief in him after his death, which is really the period of, you know, more so Rovigo and others. And I guess it was before. Also, However, you want to discuss a little bit more of that theology or what the reaction, the further reaction to his death was versus the conversion? Or was it not that great? You know, difference? Um, it, it
1: was a big difference. Um, I think, as you said before, right, while he was still walking around and you could point him out, right, the believers still had something to hold on to, that he's on some kind of mission among the klipot, and that uh, it's just a matter of time until he manifests himself as the Mashiach. But after he died, there was a real crisis. So uh, Shabbatai dies in in 1676, and the believers all over are really thrown into a crisis. I'm sure that more people left the movement at that point, Uh, but the theologians go into high gear. And what's particularly interesting for me is that uh, we have this great information from the Beit Midrash of Abraham Rovigo in Modena in Italy, where we sort of can see exactly what people are doing and saying at that moment and see how they're dealing with the crisis. So what Modena's Beit Midrash was famous for is prophecy. Uh, he had, he, in his own turn. uh, was a sort of a prophet. And he had these two, at least two, uh, super important ba'alein magi in his Beit Midrash. Uh, Before I tell you about them, I want to just point out the idea of a magi is almost unknown in the Middle Ages. It comes from Sefer HaTamar probably has origins with the Sufis, with Muslims, but I don't know. Uh, It starts to show up among the Sefer HaMeshiv Circle at the end of the period of Jewish life in Spain. It comes into uh, the Ottoman Empire with uh, Rabbi Yosef Taitatzik, who is a member of the Sefer HaMeshiv Circle. His student slash associate, Rabbi Yosef Karo, is the most famous Baal Magid, right? And that famous letter of Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz about the appearance of the Magid on Shavuos night, that happened in uh, Nicopolis And um, the Magid tells him and his group to move to Eretz Israel. that's why that's the origin of the, of the group in Sfat, right? Which is why there were all these Kabbalists in Sfat, right? Uh, Nathan of Gaza uh, has manuscripts of Rabbi Yosef Taitatzik about the uh, Magid. He learns the idea of a Magid. He becomes a Baal Magid. Uh, Then there are Magidim in Cardoso's circle, and in short, something that had been a very rare phenomenon up until then, explodes among the Sabbateans. So there are Magidim all over the place among the Sabbateans. And the ones in the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Avram Rovigo are among the most famous and most influential. So, of course, Rabbi Avram Rovigo's closest friend is Rabba Rabbi Yamin Hakohen, who seems to be the conduit uh, through which the idea of the Ma'gid reaches the Ramcha. So that's kind of the uh, the, ch- the chain of transmission as far as I can put it together. Now, uh, the first, as Yishaya Tishbi proved, right using some very subtle. Uh, 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 work on, on the manuscript material, uh, some some really excellent scholarly work, uh, he determined that the first Magid and the Beit Midrash of Abraham Ravigo was a fantastic character named Bear Perilhefter. Bear Perilhefter uh, was... Uh, a person who was uh, teaching Hebrew to some of the most important uh, Christian Hebraists of the period. Uh, His wife, Bella Perelhefter, was a famous uh, Jewish woman author. Uh, I first learned about her from Elishella Carvach. Since then, a bunch of material has been published. Uh, Ber Ber and and Bella Perelhefter wrote uh, a a book together in Yiddish um, he was a rabbi in Mantua. he was a rabbi in Prague, and he was a Baal Magid in the base Medrash of Rabbi Abram Rovigo. And uh, he is there at the moment when the news, or just after the moment that the news of Shabtai's death comes through. And he, uh, through his Magid, his Magid uh, tells him, you know, here's what's going to happen. Uh, He's going to come back soon, and uh, this is what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And um, Avram Rodrigo uh, takes this information that he's getting through the Magid of Carol Hefter, and he's telling everybody about it, right? There's a whole network of of Sabbateans, and they pass messages to each other. And um, Rabbi Meir Harofah, who was there at the moment when uh, Nathan of Gaza had his first Magid episode on Shavua's night in 1665. He rejects what Bear Perilhefter's Magid is saying. He claims it's not a real Magid, and maybe it's uh, Kweepa and Sitra Afra and who knows what. And there's a big argument that ensues. But it's very interesting to get the sense of right how people are seeing this moment. So... Uh if I recall correctly, the, the Magi uh tells them that they should stop saying the tikkunim, right? They they should return to saying the tikkunim of the Arizal, which they had stopped during the period of Shabtai, right? In other words, they should sort of normalize again in certain ways, but still not in other ways, so on. Um, so he is the first Magid, he leaves, and a number of years later, another man comes to the base medrash of Avram Rovigo. His name is Mordechai Ashkenazi of Zolkiev, and he uh, he's an Ashkenazi, poorly educated. He had been some sort of low-level court Jew uh, back in Poland, and... Uh, 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 Avram Rovigo sort of um, mentors him and tutors him and uh, tries to improve his Hebrew and his understanding of the Zohar and all kinds of things like that. And meanwhile, he, Mordechai Ashkenazi, uh, also becomes a baal Magid. He starts to be visited by a Magid, a Magid which... uh, from the psychological point of view is super interesting because it looks just like Avram Rovigo, except that it has a white beard. Uh, anyway, he has experiences with this Magid for years and years and years. Uh, Rovigo left a notebook, right? It's, it's really uh, Mordechai Ashkenazi's notebook of what, the, of what the Magid is telling him. And in the margins are the comments of Avram Rovigo. Uh, This goes on for years, and um, again, a lot of the discussion is what's going to happen now, what's going to happen with Shabtai Tzvi, is he coming back, when's he going to come back, who is Mashiach ben David, who is Mashiach ben Yosef, which is another huge topic of discussion, especially for the Polish Jews. For some reason, they are absolutely uh, occupied with this question of who's Mashiach ben Yosef. Uh, And there are a bunch of candidates from various places in Poland at different times. And um, so so the discussion goes on right after Shabtai's death. It goes on for years. uh, And uh, people keep proposing new dates, right? Somebody will say, he's definitely coming back in 1675 or 1682, or uh, whatever the date is, and they keep revising the dates, and uh, people you would think uh, would eventually give up, and I'm sure that some of them do, but the hardcore continue to believe, and uh, it is super interesting watching them sort of struggle, uh, the, um, the cognitive dissonance, as they uh, try to figure out uh, how they should act now. Is the Mashiach coming back soon? Is it going to be later? So on.
0: So we made mention already there from Rovigo and Nathan of Gaza and briefly of Cardozo. Um, One that I alluded to, we haven't really discussed much and a movement that's a little bit jumping forward a little bit. So if you have something on the others, you can mention, but um, is uh, Ryuda Hasid who makes uh, Aliyah and he goes uh, to Yerushalayim with uh, and he, him together with another leader, right, Chaim Malach. So I guess discuss that movement a little. And, you know, many may not know the Subetian in, uh, I guess, underpinnings of that movement, what happened there. Right,
1: right. Super interesting. Okay. So first of all, I will tell you that Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid is a figure from the 12th century, Right. Uh, Ashkenaz. Uh, this man's name is Yehuda Chassid. So uh, if you take away the definite article, it's easier to remember the difference between them <laughs> or whatever that's sort of worth. Okay, so I'm going to put him aside for a moment and talk about this other figure that you mentioned, Chaim Malach. So Chaim Malach is a brilliant and highly educated Polish rabbi and Kabbalist. And he's interesting to follow because in some ways he kind of exemplifies this generation of the 1680s and 90s uh, of Sabbatean believers. So he uh, reads whatever material from Nathan of Gaza he can get his hands on in Poland. He leaves Poland and comes of all places to Italy, right? And he goes, apparently, briefly to Avram Rovigo. And then he goes to the Hakoin of Reggio, and he spends a lot of time with the Rabach. The Rabach becomes kind of his Rebbe, uh, really, in these matters. He spends a lot of time and studies with him. And uh, from there, he gets all kinds of writings of Nathan of Gaza that he didn't have in Poland. And he goes back to Poland and he brings these writings with him and he teaches his fellow Polish rabbis about all these new teachings of Nathan of Gaza. He then uh, leaves uh, Poland again and he goes to the Ottoman Empire and there he studies with Cardoso. Uh, And you'll remember that Cardoso highly, uh, very strongly teaches that. Uh, Jewish believers in Shabtai should stay Jewish and they should stay Shomrei Mitzvot uh, and they shouldn't become antinomians, that is to say people who who stop uh, keeping the halacha, right? Uh, And uh, so uh, Malach studies with him for quite a while. And then he goes to study with Shmuel Primo, who had been uh, Shabtai's um, secretary, who's very Close with Shabbat. He had, meanwhile, Primo had become highly radicalized. He n- never joined those who, uh, who left Judaism. He never converted. And in fact, he was the rabbi of Ederne. But he, uh, he taught a much more radical version of Sabbatean theology. And um, I think that he was much more antinomian, that is to say, he believed in these ritual transgressions of halacha. So after studying with him, Malach became radicalized in that way. And uh, he again returned to Poland and he brought all these ideas with him. So he makes the rounds, right of the Sabbatean cells in Italy and the Ottoman Empire, and brings all these ideas back to, Poland, where there is apparently a, uh, a, a good audience for all this material. One of the people that he, that he brings over to the radical version of Sabatian teachings uh, from Primo uh, in Poland is uh, the Chassid. Yehuda Chassid and Chaim Malach. right, are now kind of the leaders of a cell or a group. And uh, they feel that the next big move uh, in the Sabbatean awakening or the manifestation is to bring a lot of Jews to Eretz Israel to make a big Aliyah movement. And so they start out in Poland. Uh, they go through various areas in Eastern Europe. Uh, then... Um, into uh, Germany, Western Europe, and everywhere they go, they pick up supporters. Now, they are not announcing publicly that this is a Sabbatean project, but they are both deep and radical Sabbateans, and many of the people who join their group as it grows and snowballs going through Europe are Sabbateans. Certain people recognize this, and they try to stop this group, but nobody wants to take the initiative because what a great thing, a huge group of Jews moving to Eretz Israel, you know, who wants to stop that? So nobody will stop it, even though some people really know the Sabbatean character, at least of leadership and many of the members of the group. So it's a long story and quite complicated, but they uh, bring a large group, some people had said a thousand or more than a thousand, it may not have been that many, but certainly several hundred Jews, and they eventually arrive in Yerushalayim, at which time Rabbi Huda Chassid, who is, who is this fiery and highly, um, uh, what's the word I need, uh, magnetic Uh, Darshan and so on, uh, he promptly dies within days of their arrival in Yerushalayim. Now, Yerushalayim is a complicated place to be because it has an Ottoman governor who is very rapacious and uh, takes every penny that he can squeeze out of the Jews and Christians who live in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim also has an existing Sephardic community, which is barely hanging on by its fingernails because of this governor, right? And there are some Ashkenazim there as well. So now this big new group comes and they got nothing. They have, they're have they not coming with money, they're, they're dirt poor, right? And now they're they just sort of dropped into Shalayim and uh, the governor thinks that he's going to squeeze more money out of this new and large community. And the finances of the community just collapse, and it's a big disaster. Um, Chaim Malach is in charge of this group, right? Once the Chassid dies, various complicated things happen, but they essentially take over the Ashkenazi community in Yushalayim. Um, Now, uh, another thing that happens uh, a, a couple of years after they arrive is that Avram Rovigo from Italy shows up to join them. And that's a good thing for them because he's quite wealthy. He brings a bunch of money with him. So he becomes an important figure in the establishment of the Yerushalayim um, uh, Ashkenazi community. This group, the, uh, the Hasid group, uh, builds a shul builds a synagogue for themselves in Yerushalayim. Now, it was not called the Churva when they built it. It's sort of like I tell my students, you know, when you visit Rome, everywhere you go, there are ruins. And I have never quite figured out why the ancient Romans loved building ruins. I don't know. Why didn't they build nice buildings? Um, (laughs) The Churva... (laughs) What became the Chorva was destroyed later uh, under various circumstances, uh, but that was originally the project of these, this, uh, this quasi-Sabbatean group under, under Chaim Malach and, and, um, and Yehuda Hasid. Uh So when you go and visit the Chorva in the old city of Yerushalayim, just remember that that was a Sabbatean project. Originally, the uh, eventually, the European supporters of the Malach and Hasid group, who include Rabbi David Oppenheim, uh, find out that the community is essentially ruled over by Sabbatean believers, and they yank their support, and these people are sort of thrown out. Uh, and they go various places. One of the most radical groups of Sabbateans mm-hmm. leaving right from the original Hasid Malach group, leaving Yerushalayim, goes to Mannheim in Germany. Uh, and they're, they're really um, radical Sabbatean theologians and believers. Um, one of the people who uh, drops by to visit them there is one of Yomassan Iveshitz, uh, but that's a whole
0: different story. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, took a little bit of a detour into the Yehuda ch- chassid, uh story. Just a uh, figure's worth bringing up as, you know, that ends and he died in 1700. So that's, right. you know, kind of to there. So uh, just one other thing I wanted, as we finish up, I wanted to mention, I think it's worth mentioning. And we've kind of alluded to this, but we haven't actually, I don't, I don't think said this emphatically that, you know, we mentioned a couple figures from Radical, you know, Cardozo and Nathan of Gaza, and the like, and then from Rovigo, and and Cohen, so Vitali. so there is, you know, from basically the, the belief, you know, the, the rabbinic figures of theology, you have figures, obviously, that are radical, you know, heretics, and then you have Rabbanim, uh, like the Rabach, um that are considered by many a big Talmud Chacham, so... They weren't all believing, I don't know what the right way to put it, they weren't all believing the same thing, right? There was a little bit, you just want to explore this, there was a little bit of a difference, you know, going on here between the different kind of figures, right?
1: There are enormous differences in what people believe. I I do want to correct one thing, though. Uh, There are radicals who are enormous tamidei chachamim, Uh, there are very conservative uh, people um, who believe in a a very uh, moderate version and people who don't believe in any of it who are uh, not Talmidei Chachamim at all. (laughs) Uh, In other words, all flavors uh, of this movement uh, in this period, the late 17th, the beginning of the 18th century, all flavors of the movement contain people who are enormous Talmidei Chachamim and people who are moderate Talmidei Chachamim and people who are ignorant. Uh, and in, in that statement, I want to include the Donmeh, the people who converted to Islam in Salomiki, some of the most uh, important rabbis in the community com- converted to Islam with the Donmeh. So, uh, so that's as far as that goes now. Uh, there are sort of two directions that this takes. There's the question, so there's been a lot of discussion. Pavel Macheco has been very interested in this question of heresy and what the Sabbateans were doing, believing, what it meant uh, in in this period and into the early and middle part of the the 18th century. it's it's clear that well wow that was going to come out weird it's clear that it's unclear (laughs) it's it's all very foggy and uh, even the difference between apostates and people who stay within judaism as we saw with shtomo Ayalon can be very uh tricky uh to to understand uh but there's clearly no simple difference between radical and moderate Sabbateans. And there's no simple way to say, oh, here's how you tell what's a moderate, here's how you tell what's a radical. So this has been a a topic of discussion and a a bunch of recent uh, scholarship. Um, So even though Sholem talks about moderates and radicals, it's it's not clear cut. Sometimes Sholem seems to be saying that radical Sabbateans are the ones who abandon Judaism and moderates are the ones who stay within Judaism. But that doesn't seem right either, because of the ones who stay within Judaism. uh, There are some who have very radical theologies, uh, these tripartite God uh, ideas or two part God ideas. and that's the type of thing where Nechem uh, Yachayon becomes really radical. Uh, and um, and then there are more moderate forms uh, of, of the theology. Um, but uh, there are also different attitudes toward the keeping of the mitzvot. There are people like Rovigo, who keeps everything, is a a very pious, very uh, intense Shomer Mitzvot Jew. It is possible that he is not keeping Tisha B'Av as a fast. That's the one thing that might not be going on there. Um, There are other people who are uh, ritual antinomians, uh, like... um, this guy, the Kachin, uh, Zlacho, I think, uh, they will eat, for example, exactly a kezayit of bread on Pesach. So it's clear that they're not doing that out of enjoyment, that they are imitating Shabbatai Tzvi's strange actions, as ma'asim zarim, right, in a very specific way, not not throwing off the yoke of the mitzvot, but doing these ritual antinomian acts, and then there are people who are doing radical actions, right? Like Shabbatai and Sarah, uh, and uh, the a, a lot of the donmeh, you know, who who th- throw out entirely the. This sort of ethical laws, the laws about sexual morality and so on. Um, Baruchia Russo, uh, who is one of the leaders of uh, one of the groups of the Donne, uh, takes all of the uh, mitzvot that are karet, uh, right, and isur uh, kares from the Torah, and he says these are exactly opposite, right? The mitzvah is to is to break these these laws, so that. So there are radical actions, radical attitudes toward mitzvot and moderate attitudes. There are radical ideas and more moderate ideas. And sometimes you will find somebody who is practicing a radical version of uh, of, uh, mitzvot, of breaking mitzvot, but has moderate theology or has radical theology but isn't a, a, a person breaking meets vote uh, and so on, right? The, the, the mix and match. There there's no sort of in. Uh, there's nothing that would appear to us to be a logical way of, of arranging these people. Uh, they they have, a very mitzvot, they have very different attitudes toward meets vote. They have very different attitudes toward theology and uh, whether the the. The Mashiach is deified or not deified, whether you keep the moral commandments or not, so on. So um, it's a big mess.
0: Yeah, and uh, thank you for the clarification. I think I mainly meant what you said at the end there was Shimer Mitzvus and someone who wasn't. And just just to mainly draw, it meant to just draw the distinction that you kind of made, that there was, they weren't all the same, exactly in the same boat. There was distinctions here amongst, yeah. uh, amongst them. Um, So I think we should briefly mention just, just in passing almost that I will hopefully do episodes separately on these, that the, obviously after this, I mean, I guess there is the, at some point the, we'll just call it the M. Denyivish's controversy. And then there is the, the, um, the Franks. And then you already mentioned a couple of times the Dunma. So uh, M. Denyivish, I did an episode a while back with Pavel Macheco. um, And then I hope to do one with uh, Pavel about, um, the Franks, the Jacob Frank, and the Frank movement, as well as the the Dunmes. So, you know, we did we did mention those. Um, so, obviously, there's a lot more to talk about with this, uh, yeah. and we will not uh, cover everything in, in how many ever many hours. So, I think you know, with that, I think you know what what would be suggested reading material. I know there is, especially you know, we were discussing this before we started recording, and especially on this period. After you know Shapsi's conversion and then his death and then after that until you get to Frank, there really is a lack of English I guess uh, material but I mean what 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 reading material in English can you suggest to anybody you know interested in exploring this more in depth
1: okay so there's um, there's a book by Gershom Scholon that's just called Kabbalah uh, that contains a lot of articles about Uh, topics and people in the history of Kabbalah in general. And it's got a lot of interesting uh, uh, material about people connected with the Sabbatean movement and ideas of the Sabbatean. So that is an excellent place to start. There are three volumes of primary sources that we were talking about earlier. Um, David Halperin has published Uh, a volume of uh, primary sources about Avram Miguel Cardoso, uh, and another volume of uh, sources from the movement in general, uh, different kinds of sources, very well translated, uh, very useful. I believe that, uh, Oh, I won't try and remember which presses those come out of, but,
0: yeah. The, um, the Halpern one, uh, Testimonies to Fallen Messiah, is uh, Lippman, and uh, I'll, I'll include the link, and I'll find the, the other one um, from him as well.
1: Okay, good. Um, and then uh, Pablo Macheco and I think some of his students uh, have published a small volume. Uh, it's got a title, something like Sabbatean yeah. Heresy, uh, which is, uh, again, more translated documents. Um, Those, um, that is an excellent collection also, but I will say that it skews toward the radical and the heretical uh, at the expense of a discussion about the more moderate uh, and uh, let's say mitzvah observant uh, versions of uh, Sabbateanism in the late 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, Having said that though, uh, again, a terrific collection of primary sources. There's a small book by Alexander Van Der der Haven that was published, I think, by the Menashe Ben Israel Institute about Sarah, the wife of the Messiah. Uh, And then uh, Brandon Marriott wrote a very interesting book about um, non-Jewish, um writings about Shabbat Tzvi and the movement uh, and um, uh, a lot of a lot of the material that moved around in Christian circles. So that's very interesting. And um, and as you mentioned, the later chapters of um, of the big uh, Gershom Sholem book Shamatites Tzvi, uh, I would say also uh, the volumes of um, Sifunot, which is a journal it comes out in big uh, hardcover volumes. But uh, there are several of those volumes uh, in Hebrew uh, that contain lots of material about all of this. But they do have at the back uh, English preces uh, or um, uh, abstracts. And so you can actually gain a lot by by reading just those those abstracts, uh, a page or two from each article. uh so if there's a particular subject that you want to know about and you don't want to read the uh, the long Hebrew articles, there are English abstracts and, and so you know this footnote.
0: Yeah, so like I mentioned, the book edited by Pavel is a Brandeis University press. I'll try to i got, I'll try to link to these books in the show's notes um feel free to email me as well with any questions um also we forgot to mention or you i don't know if on purpose left out your academia page has a number of articles especially about uh, rovigo and other articles that you've written as well on on this time period if uh, anyone wants to check out right
1: okay
0: thank you so that's uh, i can include that as well um in, in the link and then there's just a in your book, um, the the Sabatian prophets, there's a, a small final chapter on this, um, on this uh, you know period, um, and obviously in Hebrew there's a lot, but uh, there's just endless. I don't know if there's anything specific. There's just a lot there, so we'll just leave it to the English uh, sources. So um, okay, thank you very much uh, for joining me, and hopefully, this- if I can, uh, if I can
1: just throw in a plug right. A- among the the great Hebrew sources, and there's a tremendous amount, there's a recent uh, Hebrew University PhD dissertation by Noam Leffler, uh, which is outstanding. And he's also uh, edited uh, a couple of volumes of um, material uh, by, uh, let's see, he's working on the Achini and he's published material from Hazan uh, this is primary source material uh, from the uh, from the movement. Uh, so, if you are interested in you read Hebrew, uh, I, he's, he's, uh, he's terrific,
0: right? And obviously, like I said, I didn't even get the uh, the Dunme books and the Frank. You know, the listeners should uh, you know keep be on the lookout for those episodes of the podcast where I'll get more into that. So, with that, uh, thank you, Professor Goldish, for joining me. I hope uh, the listeners found this enlightening. And I hope that uh, they made it through these two lengthy episodes. And I hope this was, uh, you know, taught them a little bit something about, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people know about Chopsticks They've heard about him, but maybe don't know more about the story and the theology and the history, what exactly went on. So hopefully this taught them a little bit.
1: Thank you so much. My
0: pleasure.